Today, a psalm for when it's hard to think of why we would even want one. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. This is the 66th Psalm. I know I've skipped a few on my journey through all of the Psalms, uh, but you know I only get to do it so off, ever so often. And so uh, I've I've come to this this particular Psalm. It's different. It's it's not a Davidic Psalm. It doesn't say that it's a Psalm of David, and it's it reads as a Psalm that has its roots prior to David's reign. And so it seems more like the Mosaic Psalms, for instance, or that it has its roots in something about Israel's history that can help us, inform us uh, about God's faithfulness, about uh, why these Psalms are so valuable to the people of Israel and therefore to us in a way that's different from a lot of the other Psalms. So the 66th Psalm, and I'll just read it Uh, in the pieces as we come to them, rather than reading all through it at at the beginning. And I will point this out before I start into it, that uh, anytime I'm looking at the Psalms, and I don't think I do this better than other people, uh, the people who do this thing that I'm about to describe, I don't think I do it any better than anyone else does. In fact, sometimes I'm really grasping at straws, trying to figure out what the elements are that need to be observed this way, but it, it has been important for me, and in looking back on the Psalms and even reading how other people interpret those Psalms, I think it's really helped me to be true uh, to, to the message. Or to, and, and again, saying a Psalm has a message is sort of cheapening it in some ways, but to the Psalm itself as a piece of art, but also a piece of art that is God speaking uh, through this work. Uh, to a part of us that we ignore a lot of times. And that's sort of the way this psalm is, obviously, the way this psalm is also. But in order to come to these psalms and not just turn them into whatever I want them to be, uh, which is a lot of what we do with art, we just convert it into our personal pet. And the psalms are too important for that. And so it seems important to me to do with the psalms the same thing I would do with any other text, And that's observe the elements about it that are indisputably distinct, that are objectively calling out for our attention to notice them. And so in some cases, that's a rhyming scheme. I mean, not literally a rhyming scheme, because in English poetry, we would do it with rhymes, you know, how words sound alike and things like that. And there are, there is plenty of wordplay in the Psalms. I'm not saying that's not present. But when I say that, I mean with alliteration, for instance, or, uh, you know, taking acrostics and creating verse by verse 
uh, letters at the beginning of each verse that spell out a word or are the alphabet in Hebrew, and it's that latter case that I'm actually talking about here. So, you know, those things are so obvious, you can't miss them. If it's if each verse begins and it's Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, and so on, all through the Hebrew alphabet, then, you, you know, look at that. In the same way, sometimes the Psalms are broken up with these verses that are just longer than all the other verses, and I mean significantly longer. And, you know, did they have to be compiled that way? I don't know. Historically, I don't know. I don't think anybody else knows. We all speculate about it. But it certainly stands out. And in this case, there are five verses that are distinct from all the other verses in the psalm. And they're spread out in a way that thematically works uh, for me to say it looks like these verses sort of give a direction or a focus to the rest of the psalm. I'm not saying that to you because I want to go through it and just talk to you about how long the verses are and stuff like that. I'm doing it to say that as you read through a psalm like this first, it just, you know, it just flows and it's sort of like reading a song. Okay, well, that's a lovely song and and then you're done with it. But if you go back and start looking at the details that inevitably demand your attention, then you start to say, well, there's a theme here that's distinct from the theme there. And how those fit together becomes the way you understand the message of this psalm, and again, I don't mean to cheapen the art of it by saying it's just a, a phrase that we can we can we can dumb it down to this saying, and then we'll all understand what it means. I don't mean that, but I do mean I, I want to understand how I'm supposed to relate to this psalm in a way that respects the psalm as well as my experience, the experience that I have in the psalm. That's what I want to do with any kind of poem or work of art. I I want to respect the work of art and the experience that it draws out of me uh, as I'm in its presence. So in doing that with this psalm, uh, I took took a notice, verses 3, 7, 12, 15, and 16, doesn't matter which ones, those are the ones though, uh, that they stood out. They said, ah, pay attention to me. I'm, I'm longer. I have more phrases. I am uh, relating more ideas together, and therefore, if you want to know what's going on in the verses around me, pay attention to me. And so that's what I did. And so as you go through the psalm, the way it breaks itself up because of that structure is important, and then the person, the perspective, the voice, so to speak, uh, changes in the different sections of the psalm so that we're speaking about everyone or speaking to everyone to begin with. But by the end, we're first person singular, and it's the Messiah who's speaking. And it's clear that those transitions are something that affect the way the psalm affects us. And so as we're going through it, I just want to point out that I'm not uh, just speculating wildly about where this psalm goes. It does seem to point us in this direction. And so here's the direction I think it goes. In the opening of it, to the choir master, a song, a psalm, so that we recognize this is a song for everyone to sing together. And it comes not from David. It could have come from the people who served after David to compile or compose these psalms. They did both. Uh, Or it could have come from before David, just like the Mosaic Psalms, right? Well, I'm saying that because the context that seems to be pulled into this psalm precedes David by several hundred years. Uh, And that, you know, just 
requires us to familiarize ourselves with a particular story, and especially a story in the book of Joshua, Achan's story in the book of Joshua. And I'll point that out as we go along. I, I, I would not have concluded that this psalm is specifically about Achan. I, I haven't concluded that. It's not specifically about Achan. But I think the account of what happens with Achan right after Jericho, you know, the defeated AI and the consequences that go with it, and then even with the Gibeonites who come and make sort of an arrangement with the people of, of Israel after that, they seem to fit what the psalmist wants in our minds as we're processing what to do with this language, with the words of this psalm. And so here's where it begins. Oh, and, and by the way, I'll say this also. As the psalm begins, and we're shouting for joy to God, all the earth, that's where we're beginning, we're also beginning that, in, the, in this first section it even says this, in, in, with, with, a, with an awareness that enemies of God are cringing in front of him, and that something terrible can happen to us. I mean, he's going to describe shortly the enemies riding over our heads. So there are terrible things that happen to us. And that dissonance between our awareness that God is all-powerful and all-good and then the reality of what we experience so often in this life makes it difficult for us to put everything together. I mean, there's a meaning of dissonance, of course. And so I, you know, I, I was thinking of it the other day because I was in church. I, I was actually at Plymouth Park Baptist Church where I've been preaching lately, just trying to help out as they're searching for their next permanent pastor. And uh, they had a particularly great choral performance, and it was uh, encouraging. You know, I, I had a, an experience of worship before I got into the pulpit to preach. And, uh, and, and it made me realize that a lot of times, I mean, that's, it, it, I, I know this is true, but I mean it when I say it made me realize it, that a lot of times what we're doing on Sunday morning in church is simply reminding our, ourselves of a truth that we know all the time, but is so at odds with what we experience so much of the time. And so Sunday morning gets us back in a place where we go, oh yeah, I remember this is how great God is. And I remember how much I enjoy just worshiping him and being in his presence and so on. And so having just been reminded of that, it made me think to myself how great it would be if during those times of dissonance, we had that reminder. You know, we had something that, sh that shouted out to us this truth, you know. And so I was thinking, you know, that, that, that Sunday morning that I'm talking about, I, I actually had the choir say it, you know. So you come out of your bedroom in the morning, you've just awakened, your hair is must and your mouth smells like a train station, you know, and you just nothing good going on and you open the fridge and there's the choir singing, holy is the Lord, you know, and, and you're encouraged. You remember, ah, there is light in the world and there's goodness in the world. And you go through all your routine and go to work and your boss, you know, chews you out about something that's got to get done by 10 and can't be done till six or whatever. And your choir's in your desk drawer singing, holy is the Lord, you know, and it would be so great if we could just have these reminders jump out at us. You know, the car cuts you off in traffic and in the back seat, there's a choir, holy is the Lord, you know, this reminder that God is good and that he's powerful and that he loves us. 
those things are so encouraging and yet so dissonant at times with our experience. And this psalm speaks to a lot of that dissonance. It speaks directly to the dissonance. There's no question about it. But it speaks to it in a way that invites us to understand what these psalms are about. So here's the first section of the psalm, and and this is how the psalm, I think, builds the case for this need. So first, this four verses, shout for joy to God all the earth. So this is the context. Everybody everywhere ought to be shouting for joy to God. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. And then the specific instruction, someone is saying the words, say to God, quote, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Well, that's a weird, that's disruptive in the psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth, because his enemies come cringing to him. And you who should be shouting for joy, we want you to say the words, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. It goes on, all the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. That language, sing to sing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise, give to Yahweh, give to him glorious praise, say to him, how awesome are your deeds, is reminiscent of Joshua giving that instruction to Achan. Now, I'll come back and tell more of the story in a minute, and you'll see why I'm doing this, but particularly that phrasing comes up in that story at a point right before the enemies of Israel are going to come cringing to them, deceptive, sort of kowtowing to them, begging to make an arrangement with them, pretending like they came from a foreign land. I'll read it to you in just a moment. All of those things coming together sort of set the stage for us to understand that there's something particular that needs to be true about God's people. And it involves those who are not this thing and those who would be considered before the enemies of God's people. So here, let, let, me, let me give you these two parts of the story. And you're not, you're not going to buy into this being about Achan from this part of what I'm talking about. That's fine. When we get later into the psalm, you'll see. It's like, oh, yeah, one thing after another is adding up and saying, this is the story I want you to remember. So I want to sort of front load you with part of the story right now. So in Joshua 8, after Israel has gone across the, you know, the Jordan River, they've crossed over and they're coming into the promised land. Now they're able to defeat Jericho, right? You surround Jericho and the walls crumble and all of those things. You have this great power crossing the Jordan River. God is certainly blessing us. We are the victors, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's this little village of Ai. We already marched around Jericho and defeated it. God stopped the waters of the river and we crossed the Jordan. I mean, we can go just smash Ai. And you know the story. They go, but they lose. And Joshua's humiliated. We'll read that part of the story later. And the people of Israel are humiliated. Joshua's afraid they're all going to be slaughtered and God's name will be forgotten. He says that to the Lord. And all of that's going on. And the Lord says, well, you know, I don't know why you're blaming me. You're the ones who aren't holy. Well, what do you mean? Well, you need to go do this thing, find out who it is that's uh, violated the rule that I gave you, not to touch the stuff 
in Jericho. And sure enough, there's somebody who took the stuff in Jericho and they draw straws basically and get down to Achan and they realize it's him and his family. And so Joshua said to Achan, and this is in Joshua 8, my son, and then here are the words, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now, and this is how he says, Achan would give glory and praise to the God of Israel. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil, and keep this in mind what's, what the spoil is. And when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar eh, and 200 shekels of silver, that's the killer, 200 shekels of silver. I mean, there was a bunch of money. And even a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent. And how important is the silver? It gets its own place. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I'll come back to the silver later, and you'll see where it comes into the story again, where it comes into the psalm again. But at this point, you know, he's taken this stuff where God said all of the stuff that comes from Jericho is, and then it's corrupt and shouldn't be touched, or it's dedicated to the Lord, because it means the same thing. You can't have it because it is dedicated to the Lord for destruction. So nobody can have it, and yet Achan took it. And therefore, the people of Israel weren't holy. The people of God were not holy. God had told them to obey, and they did not obey. And this is pivotal in this psalm and in the point of what God is doing in his people all of the time, because God's people have to be holy. And when they are, by the way, and you know how the rest of the story goes, after Achan confesses, they destroy him and his family. It's a horrible story. But then they go off and they fight Ai again, and instead of their own men being slaughtered by the people of Ai, they slaughter the village. They win the battle. And now the people in the land fear again because they've destroyed Jericho and they've destroyed Ai. And wow, we need to be concerned about the God over this people again. And in that fear, here's what happens. In the very next chapter, Joshua 9, it says, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon, they're in the land, they heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. They, on their part, acted with cunning. This cunning, this idea of deception and cunning is what the passage is talking about when it says, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you is the ESV translation. That's coming with deception. It's coming with cunning. They're coming because they don't want to have to serve Yahweh, but they know they don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. So we're just going to, you know, become sycophants here. Oh, yeah, okay, we want we want an agreement with you, and we'll say whatever it takes to get you to like us, right? So this is what they do. So they, on their part, acted with cunning, and they went, and they made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And when they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, they said to him, and all the men of Israel, oh, uh, see, we've come from a distant country, so now please make a covenant with us. Now, as deceptive as they are, and, and obviously that's despicable, I mean, you know, we're just lying and we're pretending to be what we're not, it is also a glory to God. Now, I, I'm not making up the language. You know, you're, 
You, you are so awesome in your deeds that your enemies come cringing to you. That is, in the fact that they realize in the defeat of Jericho and Ai that there's no standing against this God, they're brought to do something that's crummy, crum, crumbly too, uh, crummy and crumbly. They, they're, brought, they're brought to do something that's deceptive and a lie, and there's nothing good about it. That's fine. And yet, what does it declare? The glory and power of God. It says, we realize we can't stand against this God. Even the enemies of God become those who are declaring his power and holiness. And when did that happen? Not until God's people were holy. When they were defeated at Ai, Joshua's concern, I'll read it to you in a few minutes. When they were defeated at Ai, that's Joshua's concern. Now everybody knows we can be defeated and we're going to be wiped out. Our enemies are going to come from everywhere. They're going to destroy us. And then where will your name be? That's what he says to the Lord. The, the, the reality is that when God's people are holy, and let me just pause and not cheapen the word holy. I've spent over a hundred episodes trying to get across the point. I'm not saying episode by episode, you know, but in this podcast, we've made a huge point of saying holiness is not a list of 12 rules. And if you keep them, oh, you can say, I'm as holy as the Pharisees. We don't want to be as holy as the, the rules keepers. We don't want to be as holy as the Pharisees. We want to be like our father who is in heaven. So when I say holy, I mean holy, like loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's how Jesus characterizes holiness when he's asked about it in the New Testament. That's what I'm talking about. So don't, don't, don't cheapen the concept. You know, well, if we'll just quit dancing and drinking and going with the girls who chew, you know, we'll be okay. You know, I cheapened that statement there. I cut out a line, but you get the idea. So what happens, though, is when God's people are actually like their father, in heaven, then the world is in awe of the presence of God. And, you know, what that would mean for us is that we would have to be willing to give up anything in order to be obedient. Effectively, that's what Achan does. Now, I'm not saying Achan comes out a victor. Achan is judged for his sin, for his failure. But he's judged as a part of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel become holy in that action. And so I, I have all kinds of problems with that story, trying to figure it out, trying to make sense of why it has to happen that way and why his family's involved and all that stuff. And we've gone over all that stuff in the past, by the way, and I'll be happy to do it again another time. But in this case, I think the thing is about the people of God as a whole. We are supposed to be holy. And when we are, the whole world sort of trembles at the presence of God in their midst, as he was, as John says, and I love to quote, so are we in this world. That's what we are. So we start out the psalm with just this, this idea that God's people are holy. Secondly, starting in verse five, and this one's only three verses. Verse seven is the one that has the lengthier content to it. So in verse five, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land and they passed through the river on foot. Now there's a change in person here. I'll come back to it later. But we're not, now we're not, it's not all the earth come and do this thing. It, it's about they, Israel. And the third person, Israel. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. So here's God turned the sea into dry land, and they passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. So 
Now, we know we're talking about Israel, the people of God. We rejoiced in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, Selah. That's the end of that section, verses five, six, and seven. Now, it's obvious what's going on in verse six, right? The metaphorical language that you, he turned the sea into dry land is a reference back to Genesis and the creation. It's when he creates the dry land. And references like this permeate the Psalms, appeals back to the creation to say that the God who created this world is still active in it. And you can see echoes of that creative action in the things he does to preserve his people. And so in this case, Genesis 1-9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. He's heaping up the waters. Let them be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And how does the psalmist describe the moment when Israel crosses over the Jordan River? He says he turned the sea. Now he's about to say they're crossing the river on foot. It's a river but he says he turned the sea into dry land and they passed through the river on foot so that the God who created the seas and then the dry land by gathering the waters together has done the same thing for us. The creator is maintaining. The creator is keeping his promise and there's nothing that can stop him. And that's the important part here. There is nothing that can stop him from doing it. I mean, he dried up the waters, the rivers, the rivers' waters, the Jordan River, by stopping the waters and they were heaped up. Here's the description of it in Joshua 3. As for you, look at how he describes it. He doesn't just make a path through the river. He gathers the waters together and heaps them up above them. And then they cross over on dry land. As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, Joshua says in Joshua 3, When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan, Joshua said to the people of Israel. Come here, listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you will know that the living God is is among you and that he will without fail, he is still among you and he will without fail drive out from before you all these nations. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of, your, of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, he's reminding them, he's the creator, he's the Lord of all the earth, shall rest when the, when the priest's feet rests in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. The description is begging us to look back at the creation, that's not complicated. He's saying to Israel, the God who created the earth is your God, and he's doing the same things he always did in order to protect and bless you. And it goes on to say, we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. This is the central verse. This is that longer verse. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. The point being that God's power is indefeasible absolutely irresistible. There's nothing you can do to stop what he wants to do. So what we start out with, and this begins to make sense, no doubt, what we start out with is a recognition in the story of Achan and Joshua that God's people are supposed to be holy. That's what creates an awareness in the world of God's presence in it. God's people are supposed to be holy. In the second section, God's power is indefeasible. There's nothing you can do to stop God's power. 
So what do you expect next? It's the obvious in verses eight through 11. Bless our people, he says. Bless our God, O peoples. I'm sorry. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our, this whole thing is, is, is first person plural. This whole thing is about us as the people of God, Israel as the people of God. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. These, you know, we could pursue other things, but you not only purify things better than silver is purified, so why on earth would we want to go get 200 shekels of silver or 500 shekels of silver or whatever and put it in our tent when you're purifying us, which is what he does by purifying the silver out of Achan's tent and, sadly, purifying Achan out of Israel. He's purifying them, making them purer than silver. You have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. In a passage immediately following the description of them crossing over the Jordan River on dry land, he says, you have brought us into the net. You have laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. This is, this is the consequence of what Joshua, when Joshua comes before the Lord, tears his clothes, falls to the earth in Joshua 7, and, and before the Lord, after the defeat at Ai, right? And, and he's praying and crying out with the elders of Israel. They put dust on their heads, and Joshua says, Alas, O Lord God, this is the, you have laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would, would that we had been content just to dwell on the other side of the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it. They'll surround us. They will cut off our name from the earth. And then what will you do for your great name? The thing that's happening here in all of Joshua's lamentation this psalm frames it with this conclusion. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. So that when God purified his people, when he made them holy again, that all the nations trembled before them again, and God's presence was known in the world. And in Joshua's sorrow, he doesn't know yet that that's what's going to happen. But in this psalm, we know that's what has happened. A, you know, they, a, they have defeated AI, and God is empowering and blessing his people. And why is that? Because the point is for God's people to be holy so that the world can know God's presence in it. God's people are supposed to be like him. God's power is indefeasible. So guess what? God uses his power to make his people holy. That's what he does. That brings us to understand why these terrible things are happening in our lives. And they don't call into question whether God still has power or not. They just call into question whether his people are holy or not. So what happens starting in verse 13 is a shift to the first person so that we know it's the Messiah praying, whether it's Joshua or Moses or David or whatever person is leading the people of God in the moment, the, the messianic figure, right? And we know this comes to be realized in Jesus Christ. This is why we're followers of Jesus. 
But here's the thing in verses 13 through 15, the Messiah offers a sacrifice and God accepts it. We know this from the end of the psalm. So in verse 13, and this is again, in verse one, it's everyone. In verse six, it's they crossed over the river on dry land. In verse 12, it's our victory, our celebration. But now it is I, in verse 13, will come into your house with bird offerings. I will perform my vows to you. When the people sing this song, they know they're singing it because the Messiah did this. They know they're singing it with the person who leads them. And so I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats seal. And this is what Jesus does for us, obviously, in the New Testament's fulfillment of all of these images that are given to us in the Old Testament. It's realized in him. It's not realized in us, and we know it won't be realized in us but it is realized in him. And then where does that lead? The Messiah satisfies the covenant with God. He does what is acceptable. We offer sacrifices all day long. They'll never be acceptable. The Messiah, he can offer sacrifices that are acceptable. It's the same Im- image as the, the high priest being able to go into the holiest place. We can't, but he can. You know That's what's going on in 13 through 15. So the Messiah satisfies the covenant with God. I'm bringing that up because we know we can't keep the covenant with God well enough. We know we can't make it happen, but he can. And so where does that lead? It leads to God keeping his covenant with the Messiah. So the end of the Psalm is that. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. The Messiah sits all of us down and says, it's okay because God is keeping his covenant with me, and I keep the covenant with you. I cried to him with my mouth, the Messiah says, and high praise was on my tongue. And how do we know it's about him? Because he says this, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord wouldn't have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Literally, I say these words literally. Thank God for the Messiah. Because the rest of us could do all we want to do, and we would still fail constantly over and over. And no matter how often we made things right, we would still have those failures in our background. But the Messiah, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, he says, the Lord wouldn't have listened, but he has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed the faithfulness of his mercy, his steadfast love from me. So in, in, in Joshua 1, just to, just to point out how important this messianic role is, in Joshua 1, when the people are shifting from following Moses because he's been taken away from them, he's dead, and they have to follow a new leader, the only sign of them continuing in the covenant is that they follow Joshua. It's their commitment to the Messiah. Obviously, I'm making the point that what makes us part of the covenant is that we're followers of Jesus. That's it. I'm not in the covenant because I'm able to keep all the law or obey all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm in the covenant because I'm in Jesus, and that's it. So in Joshua 1, listen to how it said, and they answered Joshua, all that you've commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, Joshua, as as, uh, he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, that person will be put to death. This is the sign of the covenant. You're either following the Messiah, the Messianic figure, 
or you're not. And for us, it's literally following the Messiah. And all they say to him is, just be strong and courageous. You go win the battles for us. You know, you be the one. The only thing that mattered in the people's covenant in Joshua 1 was that they followed Joshua. The only thing that matters in our covenant with God is that we follow Jesus. We can't make our lives better or worse. We can only follow Jesus. We can't choose where we do follow him and where we don't. We can only follow Jesus. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 when he says, what are we then supposed to say to all of these sufferings, to all of these terrible things that happened to us? And they were going through much worse things than most of us face. He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it's written, it's for your sake that we're killed all the day long. Do you hear that? It's for your sake. What's God using his power for to make his people holy? He's not, he's not using his power to make our lives easy. He's using his power to make his people holy. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered for your sake. And then he goes on to say, and yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, power, height, depth, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That this is the deal, that we can trust that God is using his power to make us holy, no matter what, is going on in our lives. Our only need is to follow him. So the the other day, and I'm almost done, the other day, uh, I was driving my truck, love my truck, I don't know why it's done this, it's done this twice to me now, in seven years that I've had it, it's done it twice, just weird, out of nowhere. I pulled up to an intersection, I'm listening, you know, the engine's rumbling a little bit, fans blowing on the air conditioner, you know, there's just lots of little noises in a vehicle when you're in the vehicle. And then suddenly it's super quiet. Now, my engine does this thing. You know, it'll change the number of cylinders that are striking or whatever. And so things change. And I'm like, this is the smoothest my truck has ever run. I have never, ever had it run this well. And I don't know what's making it do it. But it's like, man, stay this way. I can't even wait to see how well it's going to, you know, go off the line, right? And so the light changes. I push the gas. Nothing. Nothing happens. And I realize it's because it's dead. It's just dead. I mean, completely dead, like nothing happening at all. It's why it got so quiet. The air conditioner went off. The engine went off. Everything went off. It didn't just get well-behaved. It just wasn't there. You know, there was nothing. Fortunately, turned the key, by the way, the engine started right up, and I was able to take off, and it hasn't done it again. I have no idea what on earth was going on with that thing. And again, like I said, it did it like five years ago too. And you would think I would have recognized it this time, but that was too long ago. I didn't remember until after it had happened. My point is that we, you know, we, we like, I like, I loved the idea that that engine was silent, that it was quiet, but the rumbling of the engine brings all, all the juice, all the power, all the purpose, all the means of getting somewhere. I didn't say, it is so great to have this engine quiet. I'm just going to get out and get people to help me push the truck. 
Uh, it's just, I, I love having it this quiet. I'm not going to do that. The whole reason I've got the truck is so it can get me down the road. I need the engine to rumble, right? So this is the point. We want, and, and you, you, if you think about it honestly, you'll know this is true. It's just us. We just want God to be quiet. Just be quiet. I mean, Sundays, I'll come. I'll give you some time. I'll, I'll get a reminder of how glorious and powerful, wonderful you are. But I mean, in the rest of my life, if you would just be quiet, just let me alone. Let me have peace. Let it be, let, let my life just be what it is. And if you can get through a day and you've had no problems, don't, isn't that the time you say to yourself, oh, thank you, God, for a wonderful day. You're not even thinking to yourself, you know, if, if I don't have trouble, I'm not going to improve. And none of us don't need to improve. And I meant the double negative, both sides. Every one of us needs to improve if you want to feel better about the grammar. And if that's the case, you know, what does it take for us to improve? It takes an engine rumbling. It takes something speaking into us from the outside, things that we might not want to pay attention to, but that we need to pay attention to. And in those moments, we want to think to ourselves, oh, I just need to get rid of that engine noise. I just need to get rid of that fan blowing. I just need to get rid of all these extraneous noises. I just want a quiet and peaceable life. Just leave me alone. But in reality, the only thing that's going to get us down the road of being the people God wants us to be, of being holy, being like him, being what we're supposed to be in this world, which is his presence in this world, are those painful things, the things that do distract us from the things we think are so great about our lives otherwise. We need that rumbling sound in our lives. And so, you know, my encouragement to you is that the next time the trouble does come, the engine's making too much noise, you walk into the doctor's office and they say, you do have this disease. You go into the work and you do lose your job. You try to anticipate what's going to happen at a family reunion, and you still make an enemy out of somebody that you thought loved you and would never change their mind about it. That the next time you go through whatever the unpleasant moment is, that you remember this psalm, that even if you can't have a choir suddenly pop up in front of you and say, the Lord is still holy, he is still all-powerful, and he is still making you holy that even if you can't have a choir pop up and sing that to you, we have this whole book of their songs, the Psalms. We have this whole book of these Psalms that are there as a reminder that the God who created you for good is still using his power to make you that way. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. <laughs> Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.